Thank you for joining us for the inaugural Iowa Stater Book Club. Our first selection is by our very own Paul Shirley, a mechanical engineering graduate and former Cyclones basketball and NBA player. Future selections may also be by Iowa State University alumni or by faculty, staff, or students, or they may be about Iowa State, but our choices won't always be limited to Cyclone connections. We may select books that are capturing the attention of the country or world and invite an Iowa Stater to lead us in a discussion about the themes presented in that book. I invite you to email your suggestions for future book club selections. I'm sorry I'm unable to join you live tonight for what is sure to be a wonderful discussion with Paul about Ball Boy. I'm traveling the mighty River Nile with the Traveling Cyclones, which is at the top of my bucket list, and I'm thrilled to be experiencing it in style with Iowa Staters. If you are interested in crossing off a few destinations from your bucket list in 2023, I encourage you to check our website for a complete list of Traveling Cyclones tours. Thanks again for joining us. Well, good evening, Cyclones everywhere, and welcome to our very first Iowa Stater Virtual Book Club event. My name is Matt Van Winkle with the ISU Alumni Association, joined by Katie Lichtai with the Alumni Association as well. Hey, Katie, good evening. Hi, Matt. How are you? I'm doing well. I, I don't think we're doing as well as Malia, though. We saw her there in the video, but she's actually, she said she's over in Egypt. We saw some videos of her riding camels and looking at Incredible. the pyramids. It looked amazing. It looked I'm super so, jealous. I, I can't wait to talk to her when she gets back and hear all about it. I know. I, she wishes she could have been here. This is the very first one, as we mentioned. We're really excited for tonight. Um, but yeah, go ahead and um, we, we want you to put where you're where you're watching from. Um, yes. Put any questions you have throughout the evening in the chat there. Um, anything else you want to add, Katie, before we get going? No, we um, will actually be doing a, a prize, a giveaway yes. at the end of the program based on people who um, put comments in the chat. And uh, so you'll definitely want to um, type in where you're watching from and, and send in any questions and comments our way throughout the program. That's right. Well, why don't we go ahead and introduce our, our guest of the evening. Paul Shirley is a 2000 mechanical engineering alum and former Cyclone basketball and NBA player. He's the author of two humor memoirs, a how-to book, and has also written stories for a number of websites. His novel, Ball Boy, is the first book selected for the Iowa Stater Book Club and is the subject of our conversation tonight. So, Paul, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I uh, decided uh, just now that at first I thought that being the first of these would be a lot of pressure. But now I realize that there's no pressure. We can do whatever we want. We That's can just right. throw this away at the end. Nobody will ever know. It's you true. just pretend no, it didn't happen and then go on to the real first one if you want. We're setting this. We're setting the standard tonight. Yeah, we'll, we're going to set the bar <laughs> very low. Is what I'm well, hey, let's just go. No, thanks. But I do want to say before yeah. anything else, this is uh, it's very it, it's uh, there's I have this odd sense of gratitude because I'm thinking about like getting to Iowa State. I was technically a walk on. Uh, and so nobody knew if I was going to be any good at basketball. Um, and so then to get to move through being on some really good basketball teams at Iowa State to uh, have people remember who I am at all. Mm -hmm. And now to be talking about a book that I wrote is a rather bizarre uh, maze of events. But I can only say that uh, it's it's very cool. So thanks for having me. Yeah, well, I thought we'd just maybe list a few of the places people are watching from. We love to say, you know, Cyclones everywhere. We've got people out in Florida. Texas, uh, Kansas City, and and someone, hey, watching from Denver, where you're at tonight, Paul. All right. She actually, I kidnapped her. She's in the theater. <laughs> That's great. Oh. Well, how tonight is going to work, Katie and I will have some questions for you, Paul, uh, to get some discussion going. We'll also be adding in comments and questions from people in the chat. We can you know, pull up um, you know, comments like this from Mary have enjoyed listening to Paul's podcast. So you got a, po a podcast listener, Paul. So well done, Mary. Thank you for that. So we'll pop we're up some comments. If you guys best. have any questions or comments about the book, um, feel free to drop those in the chat on YouTube. Um, so yeah, let's get things started. Uh, Paul, why don't you share a little bit about what ball boy is all about? Um, Sorry, I was laughing because like nobody ever wants to hear somebody talk about what a book is, the plot of a book is. Like that's boring. But I'm gonna try to I'm gonna try my best to make it sound interesting. And the best way to do that is to say that Ball Boy is like Karate Kid, but in reverse, 
and with basketball. And what I mean by that is in Karate Kid, they moved from, I think, New Jersey mm -hmm. to uh, Encino, California. And I actually used Encino as the home for Gray Taylor, who is the protagonist of, uh, of Ball Boy. He lives there with his uh, single mother who decides that uh, kind of in a rush, she's going to move the two of them back to her small town in Kansas. Um, and so Gray is uprooted as a, uh, as a young person, which is always challenging, and has to find his way in this new little town in Kansas. Uh, and his way of, of making or of fitting in is to, that he finds basketball and uses that as a way to fit into that town and into his new world. Um, and I think there's a, a universality in that fish out of water story in that we've all been that person, whether it was exactly like Gray Taylor or most likely some other kind of situation. Um, I feel like I've been through that a lot, having moved a lot as an adult, right? Like I played all over the world. And so I, I think I was able to express what that feels like, that sense of confusion um, that uh, is true when you're Gray's age and it's true throughout the rest of your life. I, I can say just reading the book, you know, placing my, it, it's easy to do that, to place yourself in the character's role. Like how did I react to certain situations that I was in? And then some of those situations in the book, like, oh yeah, I definitely experienced that when I was in high school. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I really like the stakes that are automatically true when you're talking about a 14 year old because we can all remember what it was like to be 14 where everything seems like it's life or death right um, and that's one of the challenges in any fiction right is making sure that the stakes are high enough that people care and and i didn't set out to do this but it was fun to remember just how important everything felt when you're a freshman in high school um, and and i think that made it easier in some ways to put gray in situations where uh, it seemed like a really big deal. So Paul, you were talking about some of those themes that we all can relate to and some mm -hmm. of, you know, the experiences you've had in your life and, and how those themes can relate to gray and some of the characters in the book. What, what inspired you to write this book? Was it an idea you've had for a while? Did it kind of come to you? Was it a slow process? So when my, uh, my first book came out when I was 30 or so, um, and after that book came out, I started working on a novel um, that was uh, real trash uh, and threw it away after about 50,000 words or maybe half a book or so. Um, and after that started another novel that was also garbage. Um, that second novel, I did go as far as like showing it to some people. And one of the readers of it said, have you ever thought about writing YA? Which she didn't mean as an insult, but she it kind of came off that way because what she was saying is that I write in a fairly simple and straightforward way. And had I thought about writing for young people. Um, so it's that sort of landed in my head. Um, and then as I thought about where I could connect basketball to fiction in a way that was interesting to me, um, that led to this thinking of like, well, I am, I'm still interested in like going way back in basketball. People may or may not know this, but at one point in my life, I moved to Los Angeles to make a TV pilot that was based on my first book. Um, and we spent three and a half million dollars of Fox's money making this TV show called the 12th man, which was sometimes good, sometimes bad. Um, but one of the struggles we had was that it was about conceivably the NBA, but we couldn't actually use NBA teams. And it was, it was kind of odd. It, it's also the case that like people don't really want their professional sports made fun of. They would prefer that they can stay in kind of this fantasy land where these are like superhumans. So that all of that to say that writing about high school or, or a freshman who's figuring out basketball felt like something that would feel universal to people and also be something I could do and pull off a real story that was relatable. Whereas when you're talking about professional athletes, it's just hard to make that work. Yeah, for sure. I, I'm going to pull up a comment quick. Robert says, for me, it's art imitating life because my family moved back to Illinois from small town, Indiana, except it was cross country and wrestling for me. But um, my next question, I guess, kind of leads into this. Are, are any of the characters or kind of maybe the situations in the book based on real people, maybe family or hometown? games so, you played 
that was one of the things I've learned about writing fiction is that the further you can get from your own experience, the easier it is, which is paradoxical because a lot of people, myself included, think that the closer you can write it to your own experience, the easier it'll flow out. But in what I've found is that that actually makes it harder. So I had to really kind of create this world from whole cloth. And what is the, I think the reason that works is because if I'm having to explain it to myself, then I'm having to explain it to the reader. If I know a situation really well, it's hard to explain that to a reader in a way that's going to like elucidate what that situation actually is like. So I actually, in a lot of ways, tried to shy away from trying to make these characters based on anybody else. Now, with that said, and I don't want to go too far into the weeds, but I will because we're talking about reading and writing, which is my favorite thing to talk about. So, yes, um, I will say the following, which is that I think a novel is almost together a whole person and that each character is more like a personality trait. Right. So a you might use uh, your own narcissistic tendencies to inform one character who's a bit of a narcissist. You might use your own partying tendencies to inform a character who's like particularly gregarious. Really in novels, it's hard to make sure that each character is a fully fledged human with the exception of maybe the protagonist. So a lot of it was also figuring out like, what's a thing about myself that I want to tease out and have this character be, is this person unsure like I am? Is this person overconfident like I can sometimes be? And that is, that's the, the thing that Gray is bouncing off of. Well, that's really interesting. I've never really thought of it. I mean, I would have fallen into the camp exactly what you said, where you'd be like, oh, well, this is, you know, you're, you're writing about this character reminds you exactly of this person and this character reminds you of that person. But that's, um, makes a lot of sense that the closer you are to the story, the harder it would be to explain. Um, one for, for any aspiring writers out there, one thing that I have found to be helpful is to pick an actor that I don't know very much about and imagine them in a scenario. Um, so uh, in, in Ballboy, the football coach who ends up sort of pursuing Gray's mother. There's a character in Breaking Bad, which is a show that I haven't actually seen a lot of, but there's a there's the FBI agent who's like the next door neighbor, a bald headed guy. And I was kind of envisioning that guy as that character, which again, only helps because I don't know very much about that particular character. I was just sort of seeing that actor in that spot. And I will tell you, so I have a, I have a book coming out in like six weeks and like that was true for it too. Like I was taking like a vision, I made kind of a vision board of like, these are the sorts of actor types that I could see playing this again, not people I know very well, or I've seen in a lot of things, but it just helps me to sort of see who they might be. So that leads in kind of to my next question. I'm going to change it slightly. Um, you know, a lot of us watching you know you as a basketball player. You were uh, you got a degree in engineering from the College of Engineering when you were at Iowa State. And so, you know, the first part of that question is, how did you go from that to writing books? Mm -hmm. And my second part, hearing you talk more about this, like how how did you know how to do these things? Like the whole, you know thinking of an, of an actor and put it like, did that come naturally to you? Did you get those tips from someone else? Have you always been a writer? Those are all good questions. They can all be answered in an, the most simplistic way, which I will expand on, of course, but the simplistic way is that the best way to learn this stuff is to screw it up, right? So I've, I've just messed up and messed up and messed up. And that's true for basketball. It was true for, you know, looking even at my engineering degree, <clears throat> I am, uh, reasonably smart, but I learned very quickly that I was not nearly as smart as a lot of my classmates. And I can so vividly remember being in Maple Willow Larch my freshman year uh, in a calculus class. Um, and now it's evening and I'm trying to do the homework and I get two problems in and I get stuck. Right. And so that's my screw up for uh, calculus, which leads to me realizing I need to ask for help. So I started making little study groups, which led to me understanding like, oh, if I can ask my friends how to do these things, then I will make my way through an engineering degree. And I think that's been true throughout my life. And I talk a lot about that here at The Process, which is this company I now run, that 
in most cases, you have to take action first, um, and then you have to realize that you're not going to do it well the first time, and then learn from those mistakes. And one of the great things about sports, I think, is that it teaches us that iterative process over and over, right? We have to change and adapt really quickly. I ran down the court this time, and I was guarding this guy this way, and he did went and dunked on everybody. So that wasn't the right way to do this. Um, and that carries over into writing in that the writing process is so much about iteration, right? So I mentioned that I have this book coming out in six weeks. Well, a month ago, I started the rough draft of a novel that may not come out for five years. And right now, all I'm trying to do is get words on the page. They're all bad. They're in the wrong order. I hate them, but I have to just get them down on the page. And then second draft, it'll look a little better. Third draft will look a little better than that. Um, and so while it doesn't seem like there should be any through line to this, in my brain, there's actually a lot. It's just just consistently screwing up, going out and, and trying again. Um, realizing that that this is the only way, right? Like, I wish that I could do it right the first time. That would be the perfect way. The second best way is the only way there is, which is that you just have to wreck it over and over again. Um, I will say about the writing in general, I had a really um, kind entry to writing in that as some people may have heard me say before, uh, when I went to Greece to play first year out of college, um, I had had a friend the year before who had written these journals about his experience of playing overseas. And so I had resolved to do something similar. And so each week I would write a little update about, oh, this week we played in Jerusalem and it was weird. And here's the story of that. And so I um, quickly realized that if I made those funny, then people would respond and I would feel less alone. And so I developed kind of this shtick over time and had this chance to practice in a very old school kind of proto blog way um, of figuring out like what worked about writing and what didn't, what worked about my voice and what didn't. Um, and I think that's one of my, honestly, one of my great frustrations having worked with writers a fair bit is that um, most people want to get to that end point of like, I want to have a book. And unfortunately, you have to start with like, well, have you written a bunch of stuff and had people tell you that it was good and that it was also bad and that you were able to like find your way through that? There's just no, there's no substitute for that feedback that comes from getting it in front of people and, and just honestly seeing how it lands without necessarily asking. So Paul, you really, you really did have an interesting life though. After you left Iowa State, I know you went to play. Or you played, you know, had a cup of coffee in the NBA, and you played a lot overseas, right? Mm -hmm. um, can you talk to the people about like that maybe don't know what happened to you after you left Iowa State, what your life looked like, and maybe some of those experiences. I know you've put some of them into a couple of different books, right? Um, mm -hmm. Not well, novels like Ball Boy, but um, talk about yeah, just your life and. Uh, some of those experience that you, experiences you had after you left Iowa State? I think the best way to envision my life after college was as a mercenary. I was a basketball mercenary, which would have been an okay title for a book in retrospect. Um, I was just good enough to play in the NBA, but not quite good enough to stick around for a long time. And what that meant was that I was forever kind of in between. Um, I had this dream of, of sort of punctuating my career by making it to the NBA. So I would, for a long time, I was I was pursuing that and financing that by going to play in Europe um, and then I'm coming back and playing in the minor leagues. And so a, a typical year for me was my second year out of college, I went to training camp with the Atlanta Hawks. Uh, that meant arriving in Atlanta six weeks before camp and working out every day and getting to know the team and the players, running my way all the way through camp as a as a, an invited free agent whose contract is dependent on making the team and then getting cut the night before the first game of the year and being very sad and then going to play for the uh, EA Sports exhibition team um, which was a barnstorming team that played all over the South and Midwest. Did they play a game against Iowa State at one point? 
They probably did. I mean, I think we played <laughs> against the EA Sports All Stars when I was in college. So I think I think the EA Sports All Stars beat Iowa State back in the early two thousands, from what it, I remember. I mean, we we were pretty good. We were actually like <laughs> I remember we were playing at Kentucky and we were like ahead of Kentucky at halftime, which nice. uh, I don't think made them too happy. Um, when I got home from that EA Sports uh, trip, uh, I was in. So I had at that point I had just bought a house in Kansas City and. Um, one time I was, I was downstairs. This was like November. I'm downstairs with my brothers about something. I hear the doorbell ring. Don't think anything of it. Go upstairs two hours later. And there's a FedEx envelope on the front porch with my payment from EA sports, which was $4,500 in cash in a FedEx envelope, um, which uh, would have been sad if I had not gotten to it in time. So anyway, then I go off to play for the Yakima Sun Kings of the CBA, which was the same franchise, incidentally, that had been the Topeka Sizzlers when I was a kid, which was the first ever basketball game I ever got to see. Um, made it about three months with the Yakima Sun Kings before getting called back up for my first ever contract with the Atlanta Hawks. But that contract only lasted 10 days. And then I was set adrift again. And so at that point, now I was coming out of the NBA, which made me attractive to European teams. So I went to Spain to play for a team in Barcelona and finished the season there. So that was just one like eight month period. And that I think kind of personifies my life for 10 years after Iowa State, where I was really just going where the jobs were. Um, there were, of course, a lot of ups and downs, as some people may have heard me say I had my kidney and spleen ruptured the next year when I was playing for the Chicago Bulls, which really threw a spanner in the works. Um, I got to play for the Phoenix Suns of Steve Nash and Amari Stoudemire. And, and that's actually where my writing career kind of started to take off because they asked me to write a blog for their website. I played for a team in Russia, which was trippy, as you can imagine, um, played for two more teams in Spain and, and really finished my career in Spain, which was probably about the right level for me. Uh, I think in looking back at that, which I'm now 45 years old, that already feels like it was 45 years ago. Um, but at, when I do allow myself to think back, it was uh, formative. And then I got to live in some really cool places in Athens, Greece, and Barcelona, Malaga, and Kazan, Russia, of all places, saw the world. But it was also a lonely experience, right? Like it, it was um, learning how to self-soothe a lot, right? Like lots of failures, lots of, I broke my ankle in Spain, had three surgeries on that, had surgery on each of my knees. One or two of those happened in Ames, by the way, by Dr. T Tom Greenwald. Um, I think he did uh, both of my knees and, and my ankle one time. Um, he's still because, in Ames. Yeah. And he's a great guy and he's a good surgeon. Uh, so I think it was a, um, it was tumultuous. It was not like people would think that it is, it wasn't nearly as glamorous um, as maybe is assumed. But with that said, it was also um, transcendent for a kid from a town of 700 people in Kansas, right? Like it was a ticket to get to see the world uh, and not just get paid for it, but also get to live in these places. I think that's the, that was the real benefit was like, I lived in, in Spain for two contiguous years, fell in love there, um, dated a girl, lived in Barcelona, not even playing basketball anymore, had this like really kind of cool cosmopolitan experience. And I think that's probably also what has in some ways allowed for, for so many words to blow out of my brain, right? Like I just had so many experiences that like there was a lot to write about. I think you answered this question, but Brandon in the chat asked if experiencing other cultures has influenced your writing. Certainly. And in fact, I, uh, for a while, wrote for El País, which is a Spanish newspaper about the NBA. Um, I was writing in English, but they were and they were translated to Spanish. But even that was um, educational because I was always thinking about how is this joke going to play in Spain? Like, would people understand this in Spain? Would I... Would this reference track if you're living in Madrid? Um, and additionally, I think like, you know, we, we talked on the fish out of water nature of Ball Boy. I think being a fish out of water constantly makes you an observer. And I think most writers are observers. They're seeing the world and, and they're tracking, like, how do people interact? And 
how can I get that onto the page? Like that's one thing I get frustrated by when I'm reading is when uh, dialogue seems wooden or just forced. And you want to say like, have you ever been to a coffee shop and like sat and just listened to how people talk? Cause that's when people get that right on the page, you feel immersed in it. And when they get wrong, get it wrong, you feel like a robot wrote what you're reading. This concludes my review of bad writers. <laughs> <laughs> well, I feel like that's a good, um, like sponsorable segment for our future virtual book club. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't be a, yeah. I, I mean, I think like, it's obviously hard to write books, but, but you can always fall back on like, well, if I were telling the story in a bar, how would I tell it? And one of the things you have to do when you tell a story in a bar is keep people's attention. Um, and I think that like, what's, what I see in, in really bad writing is often like, you just don't know how to keep people's attention. Anyway, that, that concludes my secondary critique of bad writing. <laughs> Uh, so, Paul, in some of the conversations that we have all had kind of leading up to tonight's event, you have mentioned that writing is truly like a passion project for you. Mm -hmm. So, And we're going to talk about your um, new book that you referenced here in a little bit. But in addition to writing, what do you keep busy with? What do you what are you working on? <laughs> um, yeah, it's, uh, you know, we were we you and the three of us were sound checking today and. And I told you that very thing that like writing books has become really a uh, it's it's like a loss leader for my life in a way. Um, and what I mean by that is that it, it keeps me sane. Um, I run. So I now run this business called The Process, where our main mandate is helping businesses with productivity and human performance. So working on the individual level, because I think, and I know that people are really distracted these days. Uh, everybody's overwhelmed by calls and emails, and they don't have many chances to focus and do the job they were hired to do. Um, I think I bring an interesting perspective to this because that's what sports teaches you. It's what writing teaches you. So my day-to-day -day is I have a small staff here in Denver. We have a boutique co-working space for a few like individual clients. Again, most of our, our concentration is, is in working with businesses. Today, I was, it, I was on a call with uh, a company where we're working with their creative team. Uh, this week, we were talking about like how their office actually functions and, and helping them come up with ways to manage all these calls and emails that are coming their way. Um, so a lot of my job is creating content around that, managing this uh, business that I run, managing my people. Um, and so writing has thankfully stayed consistent. The reason I bring all of that up is that this morning I went to a coffee shop here in Denver um, and I sat down and I didn't want to write my thousand words. Um, and I thought this is stupid. I should get to something that's related to the business because that's what pay this, pays the bills. But then I slogged my way through and 45 minutes later, I had my thousand words and I put on some trashy metal song to reward myself um, and I felt okay. Um, I have found that writing is one of the few things that helps me feel okay. It helps me to start my day feeling like I took some control over um, my brain, over some sense of outcome. Um, I think one of the struggles that a lot of us have right now is that especially if we're in uh, knowledge work, so if we're moving information around, if we're creating things, we don't have the log pile that a lumberjack would have, right? So like if you were a lumberjack, you would end the day with a stack of wood and you'd be able to say like, I did that, look at that, I did that. Most of us these days have these jobs where we're just like, there's no sense of completion, there's no finish and there's no um, sense that we like nailed something. And for me, writing is that that feeling of, of I guess, um, some kind of forward progress. Like, I know that I wrote my thousand words this morning. And that's piggybacked on, I know that I stretched this morning and I meditated and I had my lemon water, right? Like, it's it's I go through these little things that I can control, knowing that the rest of my day is not going to be up to me, that things are just going to start coming at me. Um, but with with writing, I can find that little pocket where... Where things make sense which by the way is not unlike basketball i mean I, I found that to be true as a kid i could go out on the 
gravel driveway behind my parents' house and I could shoot and things were okay, right? Like I could control how long I stayed out there or what I did while I was out there or what I was thinking about. And I think that honestly, I think we all need something like that, whether it's writing or basketball or doing puzzles or cooking or crocheting. We need something that allows us to feel a sense of forward progress, a sense that we're getting a little bit better at something, a sense that we're adding to our skill set throughout life. And so for me, writing has become this like really positive addiction uh, where if I don't do it, I don't feel great. How can people get in touch with you about uh, becoming part of that, the process, that coaching that you offer? Um, so our website is createyourprocess.com. Um, and I'm also happy to just tell people that my email address, we're all Iowa State people here. My email address is paul at createyourprocess.com. Okay. Um, and I do a little bit of one-on-one of -on -one coaching, but uh, for the most part, we're working Think of us like executive coaching, but for your team, not cool. your basketball team. I don't want to work with your basketball team. I have nothing to <laughs> Somebody, somebody put in the chat here. Uh, that is why I enjoyed coaching basketball more than softball. I could not get my softball players where I wanted, but ba basketball was something I could teach and grow as a coach in person. That was an interesting comment. Mm, yeah. Well, I think like, I mean, that probably speaks to, for some reason for Lynn, um, it made sense to, as, as a basketball coach, she was able to tie into like, there was something about that, that um, connected with her and she was mm -hmm. able to feel that sense of forward progress. I mean, that's, that's the thing. Like I'm sitting here holding a baseball of all things. Um, my first love was baseball, but I could tell there was something about basketball where I just picked it up faster. Right. Like I, it, it just, there was something about it where I could see like, oh, these other people are taking longer to understand this than I am. And I think that's such a powerful feeling. And again, it doesn't matter if it's sports or, or whatever you're doing, that, that feeling of like, oh, I have an aptitude for this and I want to keep cultivating this. Like, that's such a magical feeling that, that we all need. And like you said, it's something you can go out and do by yourself and kind mm -hmm. of calm your mind and be alone and with your thoughts with within baseball yeah. and somebody else with you. Yeah, but. exactly. That's true. <laughs> and I think like that, that also talk or speaks to how, um, I think the, the degree to which you have control in your day job informs how much you need to have some control outside of your, of your day job. So I think that, I think we all need something that we care about that's outside of our maybe day job that maybe fits into a creative bucket. Um, but we may need it more, when we feel like we don't have as much control over what we're doing at work. Lee, congratulations. I saw you posted uh, the other day that, was it yesterday was the two-year anniversary of Ball Boy? Being yeah, out. such so, great uh, timing, guys. Well done by you. Yeah, so what a, we planned we, that. We didn't, uh, we, you, it was kudos to you guys for, for setting this up, but um, yeah, it was pure, uh, pure chance. Um, yeah, it, it's, been, it's been two years, which it, uh, Ball Boy came out kind of, uh, tough time deep covid so it um, wasn't as much fun as for example with stories i tell on dates I actually came to ames and we did a big uh, book signing um and event that was such a good time and i miss that like i love those that that chance to get out you know we were talking before we came on about the difference between anything virtual and anything live and just like getting to 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 be a little nervous and get up in front of people talk about a book you wrote like what a treat that is, even though it sounds, I mean, sometimes you'll have, sometimes I've been at book signings where there's six people there and that's fine. Um, it's, it's just so fun that anybody cares, especially about books. Like think about, there's so many things that people could do with their time. And the fact that anybody would care about a book is like such a treat. So can you share a little bit about the, the book you've got coming out? You said yeah. in a couple of weeks, I think you said six weeks. Uh, yeah, six it comes weeks. out okay. uh, 32323, March 23rd. Um, it's uh, it's about a rock band. It's called David. Uh, the, the band's name is David also. Um, and it is so speaking of like wanting to get outside, get outside of your own experience. Um, I got to write about music for ESPN for a couple of years, which is an amazing job. And through that, got to know quite a few musicians but really only knew the world sort of from the outside. Um, but I, I saw that there were a lot of parallels between music, like rock 
star status and sports star status, right? So I wanted to write a book that maybe allowed me to talk about some of the experiences I had, but through this other prism. Um, what helped was that this is a book about a female protagonist. She's 30 years old and her band, um, which was on its way to being massive, broke up after two albums in this uh, spectacular onstage breakup. And she has gone back to sort of normal life until uh, she gets the call that the band is getting back together for one last reunion show. Um, again, they're young, but they're like old at the same time, which was true of sports. And so they get back together to play this show. And then they realize that maybe they actually are better now than they ever were. And should they put the band back together? And the book is about what ensues after that. So it's, I, who knows? I don't know if it's good. I think it's pretty fun. Um, I'm excited about it. It's like, I, I love, like, especially having lived in LA, it takes place largely in Los Angeles and in California. So there's a lot of references to like the Sunset Strip and, and places like that. Um, so it's, as is was true for Ball Boy, like it's a very much a labor of love. I think it'll be pretty fun for people to read, but it could also be terrible. We'll see. Sounds well, we, like a future uh, Iowa Stater yeah. virtual book club selection. Yeah, don't uh, don't make any guarantees because <laughs> if you get into it, you're like, Jesus, he lost the plot here. Uh, we'll see about this. Um, but yeah, it's. I mean, I think it's. I think it's pretty. I think it's a. I think it's fun. It like I. I love the. I loved getting to immerse myself in that lifestyle. I've sent it now to a few friends who are musicians so that they could blurb it, which means like do the little, hey, this is what this book is like. And I'm doing it sheepishly because I'm afraid they're going to be like, dude, you, you don't know what you're talking about. So we'll I do want to I do want to get through some of the questions. We've had a lot in the chat. We did have one that was emailed in advance that I want to get to. I think that ties really well into the book. Um, this one, I'm trying to remember who this was from, Katie. You might have to oh, Tabitha. It was from Tabitha. She wrote in, we watched you play many games while you, uh, we were students at Iowa State. Did any of your coaches have as big of an impact on you as Coach Rutherford did on Gray? Oh, that's that shows that somebody has at least skimmed the book. And kudos to you. Um, so to catch up anybody who... Um, is not familiar with the plot line of, of ball boy uh, coach Rutherford is Gray's basketball coach. And he's also a little down on his luck and they become uh, kind of an odd couple in that gray also sort of inspires him to uh, try a little harder, um, <clears throat> get back to his roots. And so in some ways that relationship is a little more complicated than maybe my relationships were with my coaches. But I will say that um, when I was at Iowa State, Tim Floyd was my coach for the first two years. And I will uh, never forget when I was a freshman, we had had a tumultuous first semester where we had lost a couple of guys due to some uh, incidents or encounters with the police department. And so we were playing at the University of Iowa. And um, again, you know, I came out of high school fairly unheralded and um, not expected to play a ton. And he sat me down, I, I think at Carver Hawkeye Arena, and said, you're going to play a lot tomorrow, and I have confidence in you. You'll be fine. And then sent me on my way. And I, as I recall, we beat Iowa, and I think I played pretty well. And had similar conversations with Coach Floyd when I was at Iowa State, enough so that uh, – he actually texted me today, um, not about this and not about anything else, but we are in contact all the time. And, and he has become something of a, of a father figure to me. I will mention, though, that my high school coach, um, who was an assistant coach when I was a sophomore in high school, similar setting only after a game, um, sat me down and and said, now, I know that you're not playing a bunch right now as a, as a sophomore in high school but you've got a chance to play college basketball if you'll stick with it. And I, I think about how impactful those moments were on me that I can remember them, you know, 25 or, or 20 years later and just how vital it is when you're young uh, to have someone say they believe in you. Um, and, and when I, when I see people, when I see parents, especially, getting wrapped up in the youth sports machine. I worry about that because to me, so much of what I loved about 
basketball was the connection I had with a, a great coach. I, I also had this coach in, in Topeka, Kansas that, that coached me in, um, in a summer league who really like helped me kind of unleash, um, my inner animal to, for lack of a better term, like just, just talked a lot about like every chance you have to dunk the ball, do it. And like how, how important that was just as my growth in my growth as a, as a young man, right. Like to, to get this different input from these people who really did believe in me. Um, and, and I do, I do struggle sometimes with the way that youth sports now work where it just seems a little bit transactional and, and, um, a little more of a shotgun approach. I, I just, I, I wouldn't trade those experiences of just having someone who's my current age, sit down with a 16 year old or then an 18 year old and say, I believe in you and you're going to be okay. Like just what a gift that is. It's cool to hear that he's still in, in touch with you. I mean, that's, I think that speaks to the kind of person he was and what he meant, meant for you personally. It's pretty cool. Um, all right. Well, we've had a lot of comments in the chat and just a reminder, if you haven't put where you're watching from in the chat or contributed to the chat, we're going to do a drawing at the end to give away a nice little prize. Um, but let's get some through some of these questions, Paul. We've, I'm going to try and get through all of them. I think we can do it. We've got, we got eight starred. So, uh, is Larry Bird one of your heroes? Asked, asked Jamie. If you're a white kid <laughs> from a small town and you grew up in the eighties, then you would be crazy if he wasn't. Uh, yes, Larry Bird was definitely one of my heroes. And, um, I think it, it does harken back to just, you know, like it, I read something the other day that was like one of those stupid things that like 1937 was closer to 1980 than now is to 1980 or whatever the thing is. Right. Um, and so as I was growing up in the eighties, like it, it wasn't, we weren't that far from, and I was still living like a sort of Hoosiers lifestyle in some mm -hmm. ways, right? Like it truly gravel driveway. We did get that paved in, I think 1991, which I know because it's, it's scrawled in the concrete. Um, but for a long time as a kid, you know, I'm just out there practicing on the, the dirt road. Um, and, and so some of those images of, of Larry Bird or, or, like Pete Maravich, you know, there was a movie when I was a kid where Pete Maravich is dribbling the ball on the train tracks. Um, that actually wasn't that far from my life. Um, and so thinking like, well, could I be similar to them? Uh, best way to, to envision that would, was through the people that I was seeing on TV, like Larry Bird. So Mary asks, who is your favorite author and what book are you reading now? Um, Favorite author, uh, Richard Russo, who some people might know because he wrote a book called Empire Falls that I think won the Pulitzer. Um, he writes about um, flawed men very well, which I love. Uh, it's just a, he's just so good at like capturing our foibles. Um, I will say that that was, I, I'm, that was a fate. Like I read a lot of Richard Russo for a while and I'm kind of like on the lookout for my next favorite author. Um, right now I'm reading this book called the three body problem, which is science fiction, which I'm trying to get into more and more all the time. Cause I'm sort of tired of like regular contemporary fiction. Um, this book was, is written by a Chinese person and translated to English and it has become highly recommended to me, but so far I'm struggling with it. So that may mean that I'm dumb, uh, or it means that it wasn't translated that well. We'll see. All right. Uh, Raman says, I can't wait to pick up your book. Did you use your own editor or writing coach or use the one that publishers provided you with? Ooh, this is a fine question because, so my first book was a random house book, uh, which was a, a bit of a name drop. Um, but I, I say that because of what comes next. So my experience, uh, being published by random house was not my favorite. Uh, they fought me a lot about the title and the cover and all these other things that I thought were crazy. Um, and so with my second book, which was called stories I tell on dates, I knew that it was going to be hard to get that published unless I was like a famous person. So if you think about publishing, we're going to get into the weeds here for just a second. If you think about publishing, it's easy to publish something like a book about a basketball player telling you like it is, right? Like that's a pretty easy sell. But stories I tell on dates, which is like now basketball player wants to tell you about his dating life, like mm -mm, that's a harder sell. So 
I started my own publishing house and figured out how to do it on my own, um, mostly because I wanted to have that power going forward if I ever wanted to publish books again. And so after I did that, I realized this is the way to do it. Cause like, I love having the control over the art of the cover and like how things are arranged. So actually all of my books now are done through my own publishing house, which is called fourth bar books. Um, so to answer your question, the only editor that the publisher provides me with is the ones that I find. So I go out and find my editors. I go through this, like, again, iterative process where first draft nobody sees second draft my first reader sees who's actually my cousin of all things um and then from there i start like i now know so many writers that i will pick out like who do i think needs to read this what feedback am i looking for um people talk about like in editing that you want to find like sort of five people to read it you need one person who's just going to tell you you're a genius you need one person who you know is just going to trash it. And then you need sort of three people in between. Uh, and you need to know going in which person is which, right? So I've really connected with that. And so I have a pretty good group of, of people who will read my stuff. Um, and as I think you grow as a writer, you also start to understand like if you're way off base or just how things are going. So it has become for me like a real... Um, small business in a way, right? Like I'm not making any significant money off of it, but I'm, I run it like this is like my own little kind of toy. Um, and then we also, we just published our first book by somebody else, which was cool. And a guy that I used to work with as an editor. Um, so I don't usually talk about that because generally speaking, people don't want to know that uh, you're doing it on your own, but I also feel a fair amount of pride for being able to just figure it out and, and take control of, of this situation. Um, so it's been, that's been rewarding too, right? Like to be able to, to know that I can get a book in the world that way. Uh, Robert wants to know if you got to keep all of your jerseys. All but one. I got to keep all the jerseys except for the one place that gave me the name of my book. So Robert's reference is to my first book's called Can I Keep My Jersey? And that comes about because after I got cut by the Los Angeles Lakers, which was my first job out of college before Greece. So I had um, played summer league with the Cleveland Cavaliers, as I recall. Someday this is going to get too fuzzy and I won't be able to remember this order. But for now, I can, I've still got it. So I played uh, summer league with the Cleveland Cavaliers, got invited to training camp with the Los Angeles Lakers. That happened to be in Hawaii, of all places. Uh, and when I got cut after three weeks, I went down to the training room and I said, Hey, I just got released. Can I take my Jersey with me? And they said, we don't know not a club that does that. And I was like, what? I mean, I didn't say this out loud, but I was like, what are you going to do with a 45 Jersey with Shirley on the back? I just stumbled out of there in confusion, assuming that I guess that's how all teams were going to do it. And then, um, to get, my revenge, I stole two pairs of shoes out of the training room uh, and took those home with me, which I thought was fitting because my locker was also in the training room because I didn't have a locker in the actual locker room. So that was their punishment was that I got two <laughs> pairs of shoes. The rest of the teams always were like, yeah, you could take your jersey. What are we going to do with this jersey? Get out of here. <laughs> the faster you can take it away from here, the less, the fewer things we have to deal with. Decluttering, I guess. Right. <laughs> uh, Gregory had a good question. What's your advice for someone who would like to start writing? Um, do a little bit at a time. That's the, the main bit of advice. Um, I think people generally with writing, they would like to romanticize this idea that there's a perfect time to get started and that that perfect time is that they're going to get a cabin in the woods and go away for a weekend and write 10,000 words and that'll jumpstart their writing career. And that is nonsense. Uh, the way that you get started is that you set yourself a goal of for one week, I'm going to write 10 minutes a day for five days. And then I'm going to see how do I feel after those five sessions of 10 minutes. Now, when it comes to the actual starting, what you're going to do is you're going to get somebody to check in with you to ask you, did you write for your 10 minutes? Because you're not going to be able to just muster the willpower out of nowhere. You're going to set up some reward systems. You're going to maybe um, figure out, like I do, what is the thing that gets you in the mood to writing? Is it 
going to a coffee shop? Is it going to a bar? Whatever it is, doesn't matter. And you're going to do that until that habit starts to stick. And along the way, you might decide, okay, maybe this week I'm going to try 15 minutes. Okay. Did that work? Did it not? Maybe I go back down to 10 minutes. Maybe I go up to 20 minutes, but you're not going to wait for the time when you have the magical situation where you can do this in a beautiful cafe in Paris, because that ain't happening. Um, I see this over and over. People make it way too hard on themselves. That's not to say that writing every day for 10 minutes is easy, but it's a lot more approachable than thinking that there's some magical weekend waiting for you out there. This one pairs nicely with that too. How long did, how long does it take you to write or edit a book? I'm sure it varies on the book, but for you personally, uh, how many pages is your book? It's about 300, right? Yeah, it's about 300. I mean, I, this is kind of writer nerdy. I don't really think in terms of pages. I mostly think in terms of words. So like, I think ball boy is about 75,000 words, if I remember correctly. Um, and stories they tell on dates is a little longer. It's like a hundred thousand words. Um, that book I wrote that came out last year called the process is the product, which is sort of my manifesto around the process. It's only about 25,000 words. Um, when it comes, when we talk about writing and editing, so, uh, I think I've stolen this from various other people, but I will allow myself only three months to write a rough draft. So that's why like right now I'm in this mode of trying to just churn through a thousand pages, six days a week. Um, so three months on the rough draft, and then I will usually work on some other book for three months or so. So that's usually like an editing phase for a different book entirely, which allows me to forget about the first book that we're thinking about. And then usually I will have another project in the next three months that I'm working that makes me think, forget about the other two entirely. The reason for this is the longer I can stay away from a book, the fresher eyes I'm going to have when I come back to it. Um, I will tell you that ball boy, like it probably took five years total. Um, I would say that David, which is the book that comes out here in a couple of months, it also, it probably has taken five or six years, but then at the end, there's always kind of a longer process of like the copy editing, which it means like the proofreading and that sort of thing. And just the like setting it up, you got to give yourself a little time to announce it and then, and then talk about it. So that's not to say that you're like working on a book for five years. If you are, it's probably going to be bad. Um, I think it's, it's much more, uh, manageable to think of it in terms of, of, again, like this iterative process. All right. And then we just have this comment from Dawn who said she lives in Baldwin city, Kansas for about a decade. And, um, she really enjoyed reading the, the references of, of yes. the, the small town. So, so for, for context, uh, the Gray's hometown or his new hometown is, is a fictitious town called Baudelaire. Um, which, by the way, I sort of named after Cafe Baudelaire in Ames, Iowa. Uh, I think I was sitting there and I was like, ooh, there's a bunch of like French names to some towns in Kansas in that area. And I was like, that sounds like the sort of name that could be like that people might think is real, but is also like not a real place. But honestly, Don Hagen, um, Baldwin is kind of the town that I modeled Baudelaire after because it's got a little college in it, which is um, Baker University um, and is big enough to like imagine having like a diner. Like I loved the imagery in Baudelaire that there's like a diner where people still go. And there's a subplot where uh, Gray's love interest, her parents run the diner and, and Gray kind of like gives them an idea on how to like rejuvenate the diner and that rejuvenates downtown. And that that's actually like a big part of my love of, of that book is that it's really about small towns and about how oftentimes small towns just have too much of an inferiority complex. I was back in Ames six weeks ago, eight weeks ago. And on the way I drove from Denver to there, I stopped in a little town um, west of Des Moines, whose name eludes me right now, but God, they had an adorable coffee shop. And man, I, I just loved like seeing this small town, like do so well. Uh, and, and just like have everything together. It was, I don't know. I, I love, I love little towns that have some sense of pride and, and um, I guess just some sense that like, it doesn't have to be that way. Uh, the little town I'm thinking of is, is Earlham, Earlham, Iowa, adorable coffee shop in Earlham, Iowa. I've been to that coffee shop and it is Great. wonderful. <laughs> yeah. It's called like, uh, it's like beans and yeah. Something. They have like beignets, yeah, beans and, and like, yeah. yeah, beans and nice. beignets. Consider yep. this okay. a uh, consider this an endorsement of beans and beignets <laughs> in Earlham, Iowa. 
Well, I thought maybe we'd just tie this all back to Iowa State. We have one more question from Lynn. What's your favorite memory from your playing days as a Cyclone, Paul? Mm, I, I'm, we got to make sure we reference her. I remember having to lift weights at the Jacobs. <laughs> oh, yes. I forgot East. the context. Uh, my, wow, that's a big question. My favorite memory, memory from my playing days at Iowa State. Maybe it's, um, maybe it's because my, my mother has just gotten to Denver. This could, be, this could be why this is on my mind. There was a time when I think I was a junior um, when I believe that year, I, so I, my freshman year at Iowa State, I did not have a car. My sophomore year, I brought my high school car to Iowa State. That high school car was a Corsica, a Chevrolet Corsica. It was a piece of crap. Um, and then on like December 21st of, I guess, my junior year, um, I crashed that car at the intersection of Lincoln Way and Welch when this kid uh, ran a red light and I bashed into him. It was like everybody's out of town. I was on my way to practice. It was a whole catastrophe. Um, the kid, poor kid was on leave from like the Navy. Um, and he like bar borrowed his parents' car, which by the way, didn't get damaged at all. Um, and then oddly enough, this is not the point of the story, but stay with me. Oddly enough, the first game after Christmas, he was in the, the color guard, uh, at our next game at Iowa state. That's still not my favorite memory. The point of the story is that later that season, we were playing Kansas at Iowa state and, I had grown up at the University of, or not at the University of Kansas, but both my parents went to Kansas. I grew up a Kansas fan. As some people may know, Roy Williams told me I was never going to be good enough to play in the Big 12. So I had a lot of reason for some animus towards Roy Williams and Kansas. And uh, for that game, my parents brought a car up to me from Meriden, Kansas, the car that they had bought with the money from my Corsica plus some insurance money or something. And then we proceeded to beat Kansas, I think for the first time, my memory could be wrong, but first time that I had helped beat Kansas, which was as good as a feeling as I could get. And then after the game, my parents gave me the car that was now mine, which was a 1996 Chevy Monte Carlo, which is, is not a very cool car, but was seemed way cooler than the Chevrolet Corsica that I'd had previously. So as I'm thinking, that's the first thing that comes to mind is beating Kansas for what I think was my first time. And also soon after that, my parents arriving with a car to save the day. Very nice. That's an out of the box question, but I think it fits you. Yeah, I think that's right. <laughs> I love it. Uh, well, Paul, thank you so much for taking some time with us tonight and sharing a little bit more about ball boy and what you've got going on. Um, good luck with, with David. I'm excited to, to get that in our hands. You'll have to send us a copy to the alumni center. We can add it to our alumni library. I would love to, it would be an honor. I thought too, Katie, we may as well just, uh, pull up our, our giveaway now while Paul's on and yes. we can, um, just give away. If you haven't yet, we'll give you a chance to, uh, put in a comment in the chat and we'll, we'll run this. Katie, do you know what's in the prize pack? I can't remember what we're, what we put in that. Just a bunch of goodies. Whatever bag. I feel like putting in the prize pack, but mm. we've got lots of good uh, things to pull from. So it'll be a good one. All right. We're going to go ahead and run the drawing. See all the names pop up. We did have so many people commenting today. So thank you to everyone who participated in the chat. This was really fun. Lori Lincoln. Congratulations. Well done, Lori Lincoln. Congratulations, Lori. I will and be sending you something in the mail. To uh, to echo what Matt said, thank you all for being here. And and I saw a couple people mention that they have actually read the book, and I appreciate that. I was I posted something yesterday about how, in honor of its two year anniversary, when I first started writing books, um, my first book, as I mentioned, was kind of a like a a big book for Random House, like it was. I got a nice advance and it went on to sell like 40,000 copies, which is quite a few for a book. Um, and so I got spoiled by that and, and started to think that that was normal. And so it took some humbling and some awareness to get back to understanding how few books people really read and to understand what an honor it is that somebody would get from the beginning to the end of a book that you wrote, right? Like that's eight hours that you're spending with somebody in most cases. Um, so if you have read the book or you are thinking of, of reading the book, I'm not just saying this uh, 
my ego also gets away from me sometimes. And I wish that millions of people were reading my book. But when I'm at my best, uh, and when I'm at my uh, most grateful, I can tell you that it is an honor that anybody would ever read one of my books. So thank you. Thanks, Paul. And this, as we mentioned, this was our very first book club. So here we go. One under the belt. Thank you, everybody, for reading and for joining us on the live event. Uh, we will be announcing our next book, our second book in the series, um, in the next Iowa Stater magazine. Um, so that goes out to all Alumni Association members. So if you're not a member, we ask you to please join. Consider joining the Alumni Association. Um, and you'll get your copy of Iowa Stater to find out what our next book will be. Um, that will be coming out in March. So stay tuned. That's coming up very shortly. Um, and you'll also be on the lookout for a survey you'll be receiving via email uh, about your experience with this event from Katie. That's right. Well, thanks again, Paul. And we'll we'll see you again soon, okay? Yeah, thanks. Uh, one copy of David is, or maybe two copies of David okay. on their way. Awesome. Thanks, y'all. Thanks again. Thank you. Appreciate you, everybody.